Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Curzon Podcast. Now uh, the voice you're hearing on the other end of the line today might sound a little bit different from usual and that is because Sam and Jake are off somewhere on an undercover mission. Uh, I'll do my best to try and replicate their southern charm in the meantime. My name is Stephen Ryder uh, and luckily I do have backup on this case. I'm joined by regular contributors Campbell A. Campbell. Hello. Hannah Woodhead. Hi. Both of whose film musings can be found in Little White Lies, amongst other publications. Uh, we're also delighted to invite a Curzon podcast first timer onto the show, Kaleem Aftab. Hello. Uh, a writer on film for publications such as The Independent and The National. Thank you so much for being here today, guys. So today we're going to be discussing the new Spike Lee joint, Black Klansman, with three Ks, uh, as I'm sure you've all seen on the posters, as well as hearing from the man himself later on in the episode, uh, Cambalay. You'll be interviewing Spike later on today. Yes, I will. Uh, but for all the listeners, uh, it's only a few minutes away. Uh, hopefully everything goes well and the interview actually happens, else... Uh, this was all for nothing. Wait a minute, As always, we love hearing from you uh, here at the Curzon Podcast. So if you would like to contact uh, the show and talk about anything we discussed today, please drop us an email on podcast at Curzon.com or tweet us at Curzon Cinemas. Uh, so Black Klansman is Spike Lee's hugely enjoyable and timely new film that uses an almost unbelievable real-life case to put a spotlight on racial inequality and prejudice in America, both past and present. John David Washington plays Ron Stolworth, a black Colorado police officer in 1979 who contacts by phone the Ku Klux Klan and then administers the help of his white Jewish colleague Flip Zimmerman, an on-form Adam Driver, to act as his surrogate in order to infiltrate their ranks. Now, I think everybody uh, here today comes with their own kind of unique history and knowledge of Spike Lee's filmography. And Kaleem, if I can just start with you, uh, I saw that you put Do the Right Thing in your top 10 films of all time when you were asked to submit to the 2012 Sight and Sound poll. Uh, but you have also written a book on Spike as well. Um, That's right. Do you want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Spike Lee's films? Oh, sure. So my relationship with Spike Lee's films started when I was 14 years old and mm -hmm. saw Do the Right Thing and was blown away by it. Not quite sure when you're 14 what side of the fence. I was very influenced by <laughs> the kind of media coverage and thinking, is this good, is this not? And then pretty soon, once I could make up my own mind, which was probably one hour later, I was like, that was excellent! <laughs> uh, and, you know, singing all those ditties uh, that were there, Fight the Power. The yeah. I mean, what a soundtrack to that film. What yeah. an opening with Rosie Perez. So it really Such... caught you from Do the Right Thing onwards then, yeah. Yeah, so then I went back, and uh, so I saw that, and then I went and watched his previous films. I remember having an argument with uh, the guy in the video shop about she's got to have it, he wouldn't let me take it out. He's like, you're too young to watch this film. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm like 14, come on. And in those days, there was no classification for videos. I feel like that's the perfect time to watch. She's got to have it as well <laughs> at that age, you know? That's, yeah, yeah, for that's sure. That's a good age. For sure. Informative. I think uh, 14 is a good age to watch any film. <laughs> yeah, no, you're well. <laughs> you should have uh, found another kid and put him on your shoulders like Vincent <laughs> an adult man. <laughs> and as uh, as you were, I was very tall then. <laughs> so was hairy. it just you were just at the mercy of like the video? Store. He was like a family friend, so oh, he would like let me okay. have a video oh. every day, mm. and then it became gatekeeping, yeah, not, man. Not you, not this one, <laughs> not good. And then 
I saw it and loved it, and he really hates that film. So we had arguments all the time about it. Ah, it's very, and then it's very when constructive. I, later on in my life, when I wrote the Spike Lee biography, I said, I always knew it would pay off loving that film. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've met the man himself. You spent. Uh, you were saying earlier you spent a year working in his office. Yeah, I mean, I wrote the Faber and Faber mm-hmm. book on Spike Lee. Um, it turned not into Spike Lee and Spike Lee, but it turned into a kind of oral history mm-hmm. where I chatted to the man himself and mm-hmm. all of his collaborators, the many, um, spent over a year in New York mm-hmm. um, in his office, which was uh, something else. That's great stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I got to be charmed by him, um, see another side to him that often isn't on show. Did you go to a Knicks game with him? You know what? I went to a Knicks game. He was there and then nice. he called me down courtside. What? And it was like what? one of... <laughs> One of the world's great <laughs> Knicks games. And I, at the time, I didn't really understand the rules of basketball. <laughs> I only just recently really got into it. So don't. the game was lost on me. I mean, the Celtics won with the last shot. Oh, really? Hoop. And then they went on this mad run where they end up winning the championship. Yeah, 2008? Something like that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really not into basketball if I didn't love this game. <laughs> <laughs> and now looking back on it, I'm like... Oh, wow. <laughs> one of the most awesome games ever and uh, hey, you know what? I was, was more right. interested I was more interested in the fact that Wayne Rooney was in the <laughs> that's the most British response I think possible to a basketball <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> and uh, so that's great can't wait to can't wait to hear your insights on the uh, the new film and Cam do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Spike Lee and, and what he means to you it's funny because I came to Spike Lee quite late I said on a previous podcast that I was kind of like fooled by this kind of press coverage of him. And it's like, ah, oh, he's just this angry dude, mm-hmm. a provocateur and stuff. And then it just got, it just took me watching Do the Right Thing to know that there's like a lot more going on than that. That was in my first or second year of university. Um, and again, I basically started at The One and worked backwards. So mm. at this point, the only thing I haven't really seen is his documentaries, but I kind of love the quality that he brings to a lot of his films like he's really good at presenting kind of great orators and these kind of documents of black culture as part of his films and there's something about that that just kind of really clicked with me I kind of like how he uses oh yeah the, the Kwame Churi scene that I'm sure we'll discuss yes later is yeah a that was a example of that, yeah. for me but more than black culture I think he more shows that, American yeah. culture yeah it's not yeah, black it's culture it's America and it's what and the fact that uh black culture has become a greater influence has coincided with the influence he's had and he's yeah, chosen to yeah. focus on that but he focuses just as much on the man and trying to stick it to <laughs> it and in doing that he has to show how the dominant culture has been structured in a certain way yeah um i mean the the a lot of the points in black Klansmen are kind of it kind of the film as a whole kind of operates as this counterpoint to birth of a nation kind of like this blockbuster that's anti that <laughs> and uh, Hannah, can I just ask you, uh, how do you f- feel about Spike Lee uh, in the 21st century? And have you had kind of a history of a... Well, it's a weird one, because like Cam, I came to him a bit late. I um, I was in my third year of university, I was in Germany, and we did a course on uh, American 80s culture. And Spike Lee uh, was a part of that. And we watched Do the Right Thing in class, and I had this amazing Italian like teacher who at the end of it like stopped the film and she went... Wow! Like, like she must have seen this film so many times, and she was just like, so like, can you believe we've just watched this film? How good is this film? And I was like, yes, yes, this is great. Um, but it was a, it was especially thinking about uh, Black Klansman. It was sh- kind of strange for me as a very sort of like middle class white girl who mm-hmm. the I watched Birth of a Nation kind of before I knew who Spike Lee was because mm-hmm. I was a history student. We watched it in history. Uh, not as kind of like a yes this is this is a great <laughs> historical document just just as kind of more like a, a examining propaganda in america well it's be- that's what it's become birth of a nation now hasn't it it's it ceased to be like a film and it's become an, an artifact i think for yeah people i to think watch and... i would very much hope so um mm. although mm. i think sadly especially at the moment i think there are probably a lot of americans who watch it still and think like yeah, maybe maybe Griffiths had the right idea. Yeah, well, I don't lot think the... uh, it's entirely not become part of the canon. I think <laughs> it's still looked at from being the first kind of American narrative film mm. that has a beginning, medium, and end. Mm-hmm. So on that side, it definitely has value, and mm-hmm. I think uh, Spike Lee oh, would admit yeah. to that. And so I don't think it's been a dismissed film, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times it's not talked of in context. I think it's very rare that someone says it's actually rubbish <laughs> I think, because of yeah, I think these right. reasons. So I think actually as a canon, as a film of the canon, yeah. that it's only really Spike Lee that's been piping up saying... I thought... 
Birth of Birth of Nation was a snooze. <laughs> <laughs> and I've watched Intolerance, which is like the follow-up to that. And <laughs> that felt that basic, Intolerance <laughs> is basically like a three-hour counterpoint to uh, the criticism of Birth of a Nation for being racist. And Grit is basically a three-hour epic set in Egypt about how everyone was like treating him wrong and he's like you are unjust and intolerant towards me oh <laughs> god and he like, writes all these letters and stuff and then proceeded to edit intolerance for like the rest of his life or something <laughs> um, well um he's just got a really strange history <laughs> i uh i think maybe you know we'll, birth of a nation might come up in the interview that we're about to hear uh but here here we go it is uh campbell a campbell talking to spike lee later today so I thought I'd just start off with asking what led you to take on this particular story? The story? Yeah. Jordan Peele called me up, gave me a very concise, high concept pitch, six words, black man infiltrates Ku Klux Klan. So I needed it. And once he told me it was true, that was it. I mean... What more would you need? I noticed that David Duke uh, was saying that he was concerned that the film made him look foolish. Uh, I was wondering what you had to say about that. He thought about that the day he joined the clan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a little too late, David. <laughs> just, you know, just maybe a few decades. It's the first film you've had in competition at Cannes for a little while. I was wondering what it's like going back there and if the atmosphere was different than it was I always have a good time going to Khan. And a lot of times, you only go to Khan when in everything does was scheduled. So you may have a film that year, but you want to wait till May or you want to come out later. So that, that whole thing, having the film in Cannes, is really the schedules have to line up. Mm. So with this uh, particular film, I found myself uh, reminded of an earlier film of yours, Bamboozled. Mm. Um, especially with a lot of the talk where, say, uh, David Duke was on the phone and saying, ah, oh, yes, I know what a black person sounds like over the phone. And it reminded me of Michael Rappaport in the earlier film when he's like, I'm blacker than you. You should be doing this. I was wondering if that was a conscious thing you were working on when you were doing Black Hands Mark. No, just that, you, what, you make, what you say is true, but it was not, it was not conscious. I mean, is, is it something that you'd like to explore further, that idea of... Um, images of black people in the media and self-determination of that image. Well, I mean, I wanted to do that stuff. I'll continue to do, but they just it, when I got when I decided to do this, it was, it was very natural that this could, that could be part of this movie, mm. and really look at two films, Down with the Wind and Birth of a Nation. About the, about those uh, particular films, um, they show up a lot in Black Klansmen. Um, I um, felt that Black Clansman itself felt like a counterpoint to those films um, with uh, this kind of... Imp- a rebuttal. A rebuttal, even better. Um, the kind of Confederate imagery uh, connecting that... Glamorized. Yeah, like the past mm-hmm. of those films connected... Sanitized. Romanticized. <laughs> Uh, um, it's kind of held up as one of those pillars of um, pillars of film, hi- history written by lightning, uh, birth of a nation. Oh yeah, like, that's why that's why I chose it. It was a, it was a good choice because um, it was something I studied when I was uh, studying film at university, and I just. But did they tell you that this film gave the rebirth to the clan? It's not some a specific point. I feel like I had to dig that out a bit. But your professor didn't tell you that though. I don't want to fully indict them, but... You're not naming names. <laughs> um, and it, also, did you know that with this film giving rebirth to the Klan, it led directly to black people being lynched? I did. Uh, yeah, I was aware of that. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me some more about uh, your process of working with Terence Blanchard, who has done the scores on a lot of your films. Uh, Terence, like, go back. Terence played on the score... The school days, do the right thing. And Mo Better, when you hear Denzel Washington playing, that's Terrence playing, he also tutored Denzel how to play the, the trumpet. So right about that time, I knew I had to make a transition from my father who'd done the previous scores to somebody new. 
and that was Terrence Blanchard. So he's been doing it ever since. Uh, has the process of working with him been any different over that time, or is it? Same. We watched the film together. I tell him where I want music. It goes away, goes back to New Orleans, sends me sketches. And if I like my sign, sketches with themes, and I sign to specific people. And he comes up, you look at it again. He goes away, writes the score, and chords the score. I like the score in this. I love the score in this. I liked uh, the kind of electric guitar refrain that was. That's nothing. You're the first person to point that out because Terrence is a trumpet player. Mm. So most of the scores, not all of them, most scores, the trumpet has been the lead instrument. And since we wanted to evoke the sound of the 70s, it came with the guitar. He came with the guitar sound and came with the wah wah. I did like the wah. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it was really good, in, uh, especially in the kind of uh, lead towards the conclusion. Yeah. Um, but there was another piece of music in the film which I thought was quite interesting, and it comes in the, the ending, uh, your playing of the Charlottesville footage. And do, you was, do you recognize it? Yeah, from Inside Man. Yes. Uh, I was really interested in that music cue. I was wondering why. That's the third time we used it, because we used it in, in the Levy's Broke, too. Ah, uh, right. Third time. That's one of the few works of yours I haven't got around to yet. Uh, Slipping. Yeah. <laughs> and you get just Spike. I, come on, I got. I'm just got four hours just to just sit around and watch your documentary. I wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I came here. I needed to tell you. <laughs> no, you'll get to it. Yeah, you're young. You're young. You get to it. It's waiting for me at home. Mm-hmm. Um, you have it. Yeah, yeah. I bought the. I actually bought the DVD for it the other day. What about the other one? Guys are willing to creep don't rise. That was the second part of the Katrina story. Right. It, um, I think the one I got comes because the four-hour collection, but is that a separate? There's no four-hour. There's oh. two four documentaries done. <laughs> I've got a plan for the weekend. Is it Carnival this weekend? Uh, no, that's um, weekend after, I thought. All right, no, you got time. You going to be around for Carnival? No, I'm leaving more. I get, I get back. Damn. I get back. We're editing the second season. She's got to have it. Oh, right. I really, I've really liked the adaptation of that, actually. It yeah. was uh, interesting seeing you... This sex seems to be very good, too. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I believe you. I was wondering, what, um, how is it kind of seeing the reaction from the audience in the States? Do you feel like people are getting the message? So far. I mean, it's only been, it hasn't been out a little over two weeks in the States. It's doing very well. Opens here in the UK tomorrow. I mean, Friday. It's the biggest hit in Finland because of Jasper. <laughs> Finland. Uh huh. That's an interesting one. Um, and uh, doing good. The uh, wake up refrain. It's been it's been in your film since the very beginning. I was wondering since if it's how eighty eight with the school days. Yeah, with um, Lawrence Larry Fishburne. Fishburne or Lawrence. Um, now he goes by Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> I was wondering if it feels strange to still be having to use that refrain, uh, or if it just feels like natural to you at this point. Look, I wish I didn't have to, but it's not strange. I mean, uh, if I didn't think we needed to be some things to be hip to that we're not, I wouldn't put it in. Of course. Um, um, in this particular instance, it's the um, one of Ron Stallworth's uh, colleagues who says it to him. Um, I was wondering what inspired says what? Who said, tells him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering um, what made you make that particular choice for the... I think we I think we have wake up four times. Well, his uh, his all his uh, out his uh, supervisor tells him that Patrice tells him that, and it's two other times I can't remember. Someone says wake up four times. I mean, I could always go see it a third and get back to you. I was hoping to talk a little bit about um, John David Washington. I thought he was really great. Uh, many yes, people do. Uh, there's so much behind his eyes in a lot of the phone conversations one moment stuck out to me when he was telling this story to uh, David Duke and it felt uh, just just the look on uh, John's face made it feel like a very personal story I just mm-hmm. wanted to know what your process o- was of working with him and how it's been you talk about it roll the camera do it there wasn't a lot of real the performances there I knew he could do it David, I, would, I, didn't, I didn't ask him to audition to meet so he was the one you always had the pie in mind for? That was it. As soon as I knew I wanted to do this, I said, I'm going to use John David. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, Black Klansman is being touted as a very entertaining film, but also kind of uh, a very overtly political film as well, as you'd expect with Spike Lee. Um, David Ehrlich of IndieWire called it far more frightening than it is funny. So... To open kind of the things up, do you guys think that uh, what kind of tone was Spike Lee going for with Black Klansman and does he succeed? (laughs) That's a big question. I tell you, watching it again, I watched it again last night with a public audience for the first time and I was struck by how much I didn't find it funny the second time around. I guess because I knew the punchline and the punchline is America (laughs) and um, all the the bits that you kind of laugh at the first time around, which people were laughing at, I was just like, this is depressing and sad and I I am despairing with the state of the world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think that there are moments in this film where you kind of watch it the first time I was like has Spike Lee like lost hope in America and I don't think he has but it's such a kind of like angry film and even when you're laughing it's you can you can feel that anger that is in every single frame of the film Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. It kind of has this incredulous tone to it for me. Um, a lot of the language that is used in the film, it provokes you to laugh. The film for me provokes you to laugh at it, but then also maybe maybe like a split second later, you'll kind of have your head in your hands or you'll be cringing with like the ease with which a lot of people kind of use this rhetoric. I think a lot of the kind of disturbing... I mean, the funny and disturbing parts for me is kind of the flippancy of... God damn it. Of flip. <laughs> um, <laughs> when he's in character in the... KKK so uh, a lot of the kind of kind of hateful speech he just improvises it's not like he's been fed uh he's not been fed lines he just comes up with things that he knows uh is hateful and hurtful and i think the um the film's point of how almost every white person knows like that they can use this language is quite disturbing that it's just this all encompassing thing and not just relegated to a select group but I guess that might just be my impression of no it. no absolutely so you think the comedy kind of it's 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 something that you feel bad for laughing at in a way at points and yeah. then there's other points where I don't feel bad at all I thought it was terrifically funny I must say yeah. uh, there's a case of it wondering if laughter is the best medicine and I know what you're saying about the language and the, what you're laughing at is a terrible thing to laugh at. And I had the same kind of experience the second time. Mm. where, But I still found myself laughing, being carried away in the audience. And I think maybe yeah. that's because my favourite joke in any film is uh, an Alan Clark joke in Made in Britain where uh, Tim Roth's character says, uh, I don't speak Chapati, <laughs> which is kind of the, really the kind of like, I shouldn't laugh at that given my background, but I found it terribly funny. There and I think this kind of race humour that he picks on is the kind of thing that he wants us to feel safe because that's how it's dismissed. You know, one of these American talk shows, they can make jokes about the most horrific thing and it's a way of like calming the situation down. And we go along with that. We go along with the fact that um, this is just the natural order of things and he's really highlighting how terrible it is and how one group of people is trying to fight against it but is being ignored by the greater society. And I think that's how he uses humour. It's the same way he uses humour in Do the Right Thing, which has really terrifically funny moments. I really like the uh, monologues between... Uh, well, it's not a monologue, but it feels like a monologue where it cuts between all of those different characters and do mm. the right thing, like um, when they're all saying different kinds of uh, kind of racist hate speech. And it's just this 
ongoing, just like word vomit. Um, and there's it gets a lot of funny. That, that, and it gets yeah. funny. Yeah. It does As the it same thing on, in yeah. 25th Hour with yeah. Ed Norton. Does yes. the same thing in <laughs> yes, front of the, the mirror. mirror speech. And yeah. so I think that's a trope that he uses. He uses that kind of, hey, people actually... There's two sides to that. It's A, it's horrific that we laugh at, and B... He also uses this very cleverly in this film where we're actually laughing at the Ku Klux Klan, where we're thinking, this is so ludicrous. And then he bangs us over the head at the end by yeah. going, this is not ludicrous, this, this is, is reality. Yeah, it's I, think, I think the ending is... I, I'm not going to spoil the ending, obviously. People listening to this probably won't have seen it yet, but it is one of the most kind of like sucker punch endings because mm. it has this very buddy cop like structure to the film where you're kind of like ah oh, two, two mismatched cops mm. like having a fun undercover mission together and then you know you kind of it follows that narrative of like they have the mission something goes wrong with the mission but it's all okay in the end but then the end is like just punches you right in the mm. face mm. and okay. the girl yeah. next to me who was american um like had been laughing away all the way through like she was like shaking and sobbing at the end of the film. And I was just kind of like, are, are you okay? Yeah, People were kind of like, they get sucked into this, like, oh, it's just a fun movie about race relations. And yeah. then it's no, it's, like... It's, it's jarring. One of those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's jarring, but it's jarring on purpose, I think. Exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I found yeah. the kind of three fun endings that happened before the actual ending <laughs> more jarring than the actual ending. Well, yeah, but, especially... Uh, yes. And that kind of sets you up. Yeah. It really gets you... It's structurally as brilliant because it really makes you think, this is pure Hollywood. I yeah. watched yeah. a fantasy yeah. film. Yeah. yeah, you've given me messages and you've given me this and that and you've given me some thought-provoking moments in that kind of Brechtian way that Spike Lee loves to do. Uh, and then he smashes you over the head. I've not seen a film recently where I can think the last five minutes make the film go from a good film to a great film. Mm. Mm. You could hear a pin drop in the cinema actually for oh, the yeah. last I minutes, went to yeah. another I went to a screening yesterday with the public and it was just dead silent yeah. after yeah. after the um the final moments just, just of the prince song. Yeah. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> apart from that and then and then the prince song plays and everyone was like it just kind of breathed out. Um t- kind of uh taken into account that this is based on a, a real life story that happened. Um it's not completely true, uh, as has been in the news lately. Um, but I just did want to talk about the character of Ron Stallworth a little bit and how, how Spike Lee kind of portrays him in the film. I found him to be a little bit goofy, a little bit insecure, uh, maybe not kind of the atypical kind of uh, Spike Lee protagonist. Um, but uh, what did you guys think of John David Washington's performance in the film and how he portrayed this real-life character? Um I thought he was amazing. I thought I found him very charismatic um, the first time around, but um, this time as well, uh, there's a, a, so many scenes where uh, we were talking about this earlier, where he he's just got to sit and talk on the phone for quite a lot of it, and then there's moments where he's selling um, David David Duke, the Grand Wizard of the Clan, he's selling him this kind of phony story, but then you kind of feel. You feel when you see it cuts to his eyes, you feel really differently about what he's selling. There's like. Um, this story he tells that you kind of like, oh, it's just some made up thing. And then you kind of, re- then it makes the performance makes you wonder whether it's something that's truthful to him, like an event from his life. And there's so much that um, John David Washington does just in these moments where you can just, just look at his face and just uh, tells a whole other thing. That's no, true. Yeah, I know the scene that Cam is talking about and I had the exact same sort of reaction watching it. Watching more, the thing that is great about watching this one for a second time is you're you're less blindsided by it, so you do have time to kind of like dissect everything, which is usually the case with a second watch. But anyway, and um, that scene in particular where he's discussing this event from his childhood, and you kind of well the the white Ron Stallworthy is discussing an event from his childhood, but you get the impression it's something that he is basing on from his own experience. And um, I, I think in some ways he is kind of like a typical Spike Lee protagonist. And also there's a, there's a lot of kind of harking back to the protagonists of like um, black exploitation films and like Shaft is kind of like, hey, he's a really smooth guy. And he has this great line where he says, uh, I am fluent in both, what does he say? Uh, it's in the King's English and Jive. And Jive. <laughs> and, he, and these lines like pop up time and time again. He's a very, I, incredibly charismatic, uh, John David Washington, I think he does such a good job and he's competing against you know um adam driver who i think is a magnificent actor as well and 
even Topher Grace, who I, I can't remember seeing Topher Grace in a good film since. Well, like... it's 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 great when you cast one of America's least intimidating actors <laughs> as you know David Duke. It's a brilliant piece yeah. of casting. So he 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 really does excel in this film. Mm, it's it's a role he was born for. Especially yeah. considering that David Duke is now meant to be this kind of innocuous man. Like it's all oh, right. He's just this uh, oh shuck suit and tie man. And <laughs> just, casting... just a nice southern gent. Like, yeah, just... and casting like kind of. Uh, Kind of still baby-faced Topher Grace as this eat, like awful, awful person. It's a, yeah, I think it was it's a great piece genius. of casting. And for me, I got to say, I went into the film with a little bit of trepidation. I was like, I haven't really seen John David Washington in anything else. I haven't seen Ballers. I haven't seen. I heard he was an American footballer. Obviously, he's Denzel's son. Hmm. He had a part at the end of Malcolm X yeah, saying, I am Malcolm X at the end. <laughs> I was roll my eyes a little bit when I heard he was cast, I must admit, because you don't know an actor Absolutely. and you go in. So it means that actually I was being blown away by someone who was completely fresh to me and completely new. And if I compared him to, say, some of the more recent new actors that Spike Lee has introduced, uh, say Anthony Mackie, who went on to have a fabulous career in Marvel films, but didn't quite hit the same heights that I think John David Washington does in this film. He really excels in so many moments. And I think he's a juxtaposition to what we expect. He's He is based on a black exploitation character in terms of his look, mm. but the actual way, his naivety... He's a cop who really just goes along with things. He's trying to fight a system, but actually when he's asked to go and investigate the Black Panthers, he goes along and he's kind of swept along by the rhetoric. It's almost like he's not heard the rhetoric before. Yeah, I could talk about that scene actually, because for me that was the key point in the film where I kind of locked into it and I was like, wow, this I could see what this is actually trying to do here the scene where he goes to the the Kwame Chore rally um and kind of why do you think that is such a powerful scene in that moment I think that scene kind of begins an arc that is kind of it's paid lip service to this idea of double consciousness uh so throughout the like so so he is asked at this point in the film I will say just to his first kind of role in the department is to go undercover to a Black Power rally yeah. and just gain intel. Uh, he's wearing a mic and he's got to go in and just kind of be there, sit there. Yeah. So you say, you were saying that he's um, kind of swept along and he doesn't really display a whole lot of agency maybe until about this point. Uh, but a lot of what the film does for me is that it's showing how he's pulled in these two different directions. Do, like, Does he promote himself and work for this institution or does he uh, try and revolt in some way? And um, I've ta- I, I talked about this before, but like the kind of idea of double consciousness is that I think it's every every black person is both an American citizen and also a black person, so they've got these two conflicting states of mind. Which for me, a lot of this film talked about, and it kind of harkens back to an earlier film of his, Bamboozled, in which another character is trying, kind of trying to revolt against, uh, you know, historically kind of racist institution, but um, ends up kind of playing into it a bit as well and kind of the push and pull between um, those two wants. Mm-hmm. The, the, moment, the moment when you can see Kwame Torre's words kind of strike uh, Ron, I thought it was really powerful yeah. for me, as well as the kind of portraits of all the faces yeah. uh, looking up at him during the speech. Mm. And I would say that double consciousness is more than just an American thing. <laughs> it's yeah, totally, it's, a, it's a, you something, you know, too. we have Franz Fanon's writings about it in the 60s. Yeah. It's, uh, based in Africa. And I think this film is heavily influenced by uh, Gore Nielsen's film, uh, The Black Power Mixtape, which is based on archive footage um, that it was in a Swedish TV on um, the Black Power leaders. So it's interviews with Stokely Carmichael, etc. And we see that and we see the consciousness um, interestingly, Gordon Olson then went to make a film about um, Franz Fanon and the writings. So we see that kind of consciousness breathe into this film. And he's really bringing real erudite, difficult subject matters. And we don't really know that's happening, like you're saying, because all he's showing us is this speech where someone is saying we need to stand up for ourselves, we need to be ourselves, we need to recognise that black is beautiful... We need to recognize that that we're being pushed this image of white beauty and that image is false unless we let it be real. The um, Yeah, there's kind of the call to we must be in control of our own image was uh, I can't remember the exact line, but he said, but uh, Torrey's character in the film says something along those lines. And well, I he talks about Tarzan, right? Yeah. And he <laughs> says, uh, hey, I watched Tarzan and I wanted to like uh, kill this, kill those beasts. Right. 
Yeah, Savages. and he's saying, and then he's saying what I was really saying is kill me. And yeah. um, you feel the the one of the most interesting things the film does is then also reflect this the the ideas that you see in the Toure speech also reflected onto Adam Driver's character, where he's like, it's not something I thought about until recently. And you can see it's the same for Ron Stallworth, where he's just like. <laughs> you can just kind of see the the light bulb just kind of flash on. But because because Ron's not uh, having to actually be in the room with these people who very clearly would hate him and despise him, he doesn't get that until towards the end of the film. I think maybe Adam Driver's character Flip feels it a, a lot more. There's a lot more of a palpable feeling to it. He's having to like really truly kind of like be another person. Or do you think that Ron kind of is just has a thicker skin? Um. I, can I jump in here? Yeah, uh, I think there's something really interesting that happens with the Flip character because mm-hmm. he's kind of not like the character in the book because he's been given a Jewish identity which doesn't exist in the book. And yeah, it's uh, Spike Lee making a comment on the fact that in the civil rights movement, a lot of um, uh, Jewish leaders stood alongside the black leaders and went on these marches, and it's interesting because. Um, uh, Adam Driver's character Flip Zimmerman has like denied his Jewishness, even though he wears a Star of David. That is not—he's not judged by that. He can pass as a wasp because he can look like the everyman, mm-hmm. whereas um, Ron Stallworth can't. So he plays with that kind of idea that yeah, yeah this guy is also from a subjugated community, but because he doesn't get treated like that from the KKK. He does if they found out that he was Jewish, which is part of Spike Lee uses this whole lie detector thing. Yeah, I was going to say. Which was kind of, you know, there's a falsehood in that because it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. There was no, Mm -hmm. he made up his character. There was no, but there was an idea at the time that to be inducted into the KKK, you would have to do a lie detector test to see. Wow. Is that an actual, that was... That was an idea idea. that was never implemented. So he took that and he took the extension of it. Yeah. So that's interesting and it's playing with falsehoods. I know, um, obviously, recently there was the Boots Riley social media where he made, he's a director of Sorry to Bother You. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Which I haven't seen, but... A member of the great hip hop group. He's come out and he's like... Still waiting for distribution. He's talked about how this film in a very interesting way because he's talked about Ron Stallworth as a character mm-hmm. and he said, hey, should we be celebrating Ron Stallworth? He was in the police. Mm-hmm. He was uh, investigating the Black Panthers and the police did a lot of stuff to uh, disrupt and disband the Black Panthers and here, the actual, the police, because of who they are and the way it's set up, are kind of the heroes. Um, it's a little difficult to, for me, I found... To reconcile. A little. I found Boots, no, Roxy, I found his argument a little bit difficult to reconcile myself mm. because this is based on the Ron Stallworth memoir. Mm. Mm. And this memoir is Ron Stallworth, uh, he actually promotes himself in it. He talks about <laughs> how what he wanted to really say in the open chapter to the KKK is, uh, you know, stick it, he wanted to stick it to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um in much more graphic terms. <laughs> and so uh, I think he's criticizing Spike Lee for taking a project that wasn't his own project. It was a Jordan Peele project who is the writer, director, yeah. and producer of Get Out who was going to direct it but then passed it on and asked Spike Lee to make it into a Spike Lee film. Mm. Uh, he's taking a project that is designed to be a mainstream film and designed to be kind of watched. And then he's put on what he wants the film to be which mm-hmm. I think is often interesting with Spike Lee films because they're so broad and they have so many subjects and because he kind of does this alienation effect or Brecht in nearly all of his films where he purposely takes us out of the movie. We're watching a film and, you know, for example, we spoke about people talking to the camera yeah. straight at. He takes us out and he reminds us that we're watching a film. Which, which happens. And here yeah. he reminds us that we're watching a film because somebody editing is cross-cutting editing that doesn't follow linear narrative and we're just like oh okay and then there's also moments where you can very obviously just feel the hand of the filmmaker like especially mm. when uh especially in the conclusion it's like it's yeah. almost just like tied up with a bow it's kind of, i think for me the film seems to, like you're saying it kind of flaunts its quote-unquote falsehoods um but it's um it's very it's very clearly being molded into a story that um is meant to be this kind of mirror to today because the um Oh, I think I haven't read the Storworth memoir, but I think I was reading somewhere that the actual tar- like the actual attack that 
they prevented, according to him, was a, um, a like kind of a nail bomb in a gay bar. Mm. Um, and instead, it's directed at a Black Panther movement. So it's obviously meant to be this kind of inverse, well, this kind of not inverse, but, you know, Mirror to Today, where it was the um, uh, recently in recent years, the Charlottesville riots with the Black Lives Matter movement against neo-Nazis. So it's the film's kind of um, pushed into this parallel, which kind of makes me feel that um, in a in kind of like a based on a true story biopic thing like this, the kind of the baseline isn't quite as important as the end product to me. Um, it's an, it's a really it's really I'm really glad that um, Boots Riley has kind of brought this up because it's an interesting way to look at how we kind of relate to you know cops. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same t- at the same time, I don't think there was much interest in this being in like the the life story of Ron Storworth yeah. as as much as it was meant to be like um, this stuff that we supposedly have gotten over is just recurring still. Um, it's more about you know the message than the narrative for mm. me. Yeah. People tend to agree with that. You think that the uh, that the story, kind of the base foundation of the story, is is the most important thing, and you can go where you need to from there, or. I I think this that Spike Lee kind of knows that this he's not trying to portray a, a very accurate pr- depiction of Ron Stallworth as a person. It's Ron Stallworth as an idea and what he represents. You know, he Spike Lee says this right at the beginning. He says literally he has a title card that says this is based on some for real for real like he <laughs> yeah, knows like he and I think Bruce Riley's criticisms whilst like very astute and interesting they do kind of bring into call artistic license and how how true you should be. And to be honest, if this was just a, li- a very straightforward adaptation of this memoir, I think the appeal would be a lot, um, like the, the reach of the film would be a lot uh, reduced. So I don't think as many people would be interested in going to see it. Mm-hmm. And I think it would probably be less enjoyable and not a Spike Lee film. It would be, you know, a kind of documentary about this guy who did... This, this thing or a, um, or a period piece kind of yeah. like that focuses more on you know look i mean to be to be it fair was. the uh kurt beach was the production designer for this film and i think he really nails the the design of the film in a way that doesn't make it like too overtly kind of late 70s apart from the scene where they go dancing which <laughs> is you know i think an incredibly kind of uh it's got so many flourishes in it and it's kind of beautiful and overly stylistic. I love um, that song they play in that scene. Yeah, does, does anyone know the song? Does anyone recall what the song's title was? I but, did write it down, but yeah. I, I, I I, am very excited to go <laughs> yeah. buy that soundtrack. It's, it's a great scene soundtrack. and it's one of those kind of stylistic flourishes that you were talking about, the kind of almost Brechtian in a sense, I mm. think, um, which happens again in the conversation between uh, Ron and Patrice when they're walking over the bridge and they're talking about these kind of black exploitation characters. And then we see the one the posters come yeah, out. It's yeah. like so reminding us that we're watching a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's so designed to take us out of the narrative, to yeah. take us and go, remember this, remember that. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is a this is a movie you're watching. Think about it. And it kind of also backs up the idea that um not everyone in the kind of black or oh, the African American community is um on the same page because they're disagreeing the entire time they're talking. Patrice is kind of not buying the fact that uh, Superfly is an American hero. (laughs) I do feel, I think Patrice gets a raw deal in this film. And um, this has been one of the big criticisms about, um, often about Spike Lee's films in general, Mm -hmm. and specifically this film, is that uh, the female characters kind of get short shrift. Mm -hmm. And um, she, yeah, she goes through this whole like arc where she's she's the leader of the um black students union she's kind of very uh involved in in the politics and the black panther movement and then she finds out that ron is a cop <laughs> she just kind of is like oh okay like she does <laughs> she just forgives him so readily they have this kind of like oh i can't really be with somebody who's a cop but it doesn't feel sincere to me if and i feel like um it was all kind of too neat but by the same thing, when we, it's yeah. not her story. Yeah. It isn't Patri- Patrice's it's true. I film. remember thinking, I remember feeling the same way about that and also about the scene where they uh, finally take down the, the racist cop. Um, mm. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, as I was watching, I was thinking to myself, but we know that that, like, in, in the 21st century, that cop's going to be 
given some paid leave and he'll be back on the force before we know it. And it felt like it was tying it into a neat little bow. But then obviously, I th- I really do think that's because he hits us over the head with the final five minutes. But, yeah. And there's it, also he, he something, us, yeah. something interesting happens in that scene with the music again, because mm. he plays that Emerson, Lake and Palmer song, Lucky Man, which is like kind of the whitest tune. <laughs> it's like his prog rock tune. And he's talking about this kind of great past and this... It feels like a clan song, but the last verse of that song is about having a bullet, and it later became associated with um, the assassination of John F. Kennedy mm. and the Kennedys. And so it's a very interesting choice because it plays into this idea of a change in time, and it's just done in such a subtle way that if you don't know the history of the song, it means nothing. But once you put that add that context in, you're like, oh. He's actually saying the times do change a bit here. We are actually seeing a cop who's allowed to be in the police force, which hasn't happened before. Um, we've moved. There is black exploitation. It's not just gone with the wind and um, birth of a nation. Things are changing. Um, and I think he wants to represent that. But this character, this racist cop character, is so goofy and so comedic <laughs> and he's so out there. He reminds me. Almost has a mustache to 12. <laughs> yeah, when he's, he's so uh, over the like, top. Ah, it was me all along. But um, <laughs> Spiley likes to have these characters, right? These yeah. kind of oddball characters. I mean, do the right thing. It's the um, Guinevere character. He's just there and he's got these photos. And that's very sincere and it works. But here, you're like, do you really work? But it's not about... <laughs> I don't think it's about him as a character. He's laughing yeah. at him, and he's laughing at cops that think this way. And you get it with um, the Ku Klux Klan members as well. You have the kind of, like, this one who's, like... He's played by this guy who played a juggalo in Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He's also the um, he's also <laughs> Jeff Galulia in Iconia. Yes, yes. I knew I'd seen him recently. He and plays he's like, good idiot. He gives good idiot. He's the very, very dumb yeah, clan member. Yeah, he's the yeah. kind of, like... Particularly one who like, kind of slack-jawed. Slack-jawed, like, laughing, <laughs> like, kind of like this like, really bizarre, like, muttly laugh where he's just like... <laughs> all the time and he has these members of the clan like Felix and Goofy Guy who are just kind of ridiculous idiots and that's what you want to think these racists are like you want to think they're kind of like slack George yokels who can string a sentence together but then he balances this out with the David Dukes who are very astute and there's this whole scene where it's like oh yeah that he's got designs on um, higher office mm-hmm. and they have this this is the bit that kind of generates all the laughter in the, in the audience where he goes, you really don't think they'd do something like that. They wouldn't elect a guy who thinks like that to office. And it's mm. kind of like, wah, wah. Well, like- Topher Grace did say that, that <laughs> he had a very kind of tough time portraying David Duke. And he said the most the most evil thing about him is that he is well-spoken and smart. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's one of the, I, for me, my favorite part of this whole film is actually him showing how we could actually how the rise of the right takes place. I know when Mm. I was growing up, there was always this idea of, how did Hitler come to power? How did they not see it? And then he shows kind of, we're living in a time where you're like, oh, the joke that Trump would ever be president of Back to the Future (laughs) becomes real Mm -hmm. and it's a reality in a way and you see how it's done and you see the marketing and you see the way messages are twisted and the way messages are put forward and the kind of... uh, way that they're given an acceptable tone and the language has changed that it's move talked away from grand wizard. Yeah, move away yeah. from white cloaks you never see David the organization Duke, you know? yeah. and they change yeah they call it they never call themselves the kkk they call themselves the organization and you see that in like in the uk we've had like the remodeling of the right the party changed its name right when they wanted to yep. remodel it stopped being the nf and it then changed and it starts to become a bit more acceptable. You are starting to see more of a platform for these people now. Mm. Exactly. And they become more more adept at being acceptable to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. It's also because the film presents these kind of two ways of how... that this group of people is made to seem less threatening. So we've kind of got the goofy idiots on one side and then we've got the David Dukes on the other. I just found it interesting how it presents these two ways that we kind of get lulled into this false sense of security. Like, ah, oh, this like, could never happen. Like, he's just, um, he's he's, fee- he's feeble or he's an idiot. And then, lo and behold, here we are. Yeah. They have this, the, they have an exchange, um, Ron has an exchange, I think with um, Flip, but it might be his boss about uh, the racist cop and they're talking about why no one ever says anything about him oh, yeah, and yeah. he says oh we look after our own we're a family like we're dysfunctional but it, but we have to look yep. after each other and that is how 
evil kind of flourishes is by communities going, oh, yeah, but he's one of us. So like, we're not going to do anything about it because we protect our own. Mm-hmm. And that is how these things are allowed to happen. Or as the old adage goes, all it takes for evil to flourish is a few good mm-hmm. men to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And that is what this film is. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is people not saying anything and just letting these things happen because it, it always has. And that's the way of the world. And I think I said earlier that I thought watching this the first time, I was kind of like, has, has Spike Lee given up? Like, is he just like completely done with everything? But no, I think there's a lot of hope in this film and it, he still has faith that we can be better and mm-hmm. that the world can be better. But I think he's kind of doesn't know where we go from here. And neither do I. I don't think many people do. And it's a powerful film for like bring I think it does bring people together I think there's a sense of like watching this with an audience everyone I was watching it was kind of moved by this film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's I can understand why people are kind of coming back with it well it's you know it's not angry enough or it's too angry people are just bamboozled by yeah, it they don't yeah. know what to do hey. with all this information <laughs> <laughs> so so just to wrap up guys you think that the way that um the way that Spike's been talking about this film and how kind of overt he's being about its implications on a political scale. Where does Spike Lee go from here, do you think? I mean, where does he ever go? He goes <laughs> into his own world. He'll come out with something that will have us debating again, I'm sure. Ah, another yeah. Greek tragedy <laughs> musical kind of thing. As long as he doesn't do another old boy and remake, you know, uh, remake a great movie, we'll be fine. No. He did remake a great movie, though, and it was She's Gotta Have It, and it turned out pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> he can remake his own films. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much, guys. Uh, Black Klansman will be out on the 24th of August at most Curzon cinemas. Uh, we'll wrap up there, but before we go, some updates on what you can find over on Curzon Home Cinema this week. Uh, be sure to check out uh, Javier Beauvoir's beautiful French uh, wartime period drama, The Guardians, which we discussed last week and gleaned some lovely insights from. Uh, and keep your eyes peeled for a feature on Cold War, the coolest love story you will see all year, where you can find an interview with the director, Pavel Pavlikovsky, as well as the film's composer and some gorgeous footage from the musical performance at Curzon Mayfair, uh, which is happening tomorrow, um, by lead actor Joanna Kulig, who will be in attendance. Uh, so this is goodbye from me. Goodbye from Campbell. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye from Hannah. Goodbye. And goodbye from Colleen. Ciao. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>